It's story go time. This is a story I've always wanted to tell, but it's been hard to find an opening to tell it. And I think now is the time, but there's a very limited shelf life for getting this out. The next show's on the way, don't worry. But like a lot of people, I've been kind of paralyzed by the US presidential election and the abundant shenanigans therein. And I haven't really been able to put anything out until it was resolved. And by God, it took some resolving. My head has not stopped spinning for a week, because what happened is downright lunacy. Sometimes, history can rub your nose in it. When I did the last show on Darius the Great, I cautioned all of you listening to try and maintain some sense of credulity, because magic and sorcerers were such a big part of that story. And people in those times believed in magic and sorcery. I needed everyone to try and think like an ancient Mesopotamian who didn't know any better. And yet, here we are, two and a half thousand years later, and I know with certainty that at some point in the future, I'm going to have to explain to someone that what happened last week is actually what happened. Because there's no way that it could have happened. It defies credulity. And I'm going to have to explain to these future people that, no, I watched it. It definitely happened that way. The 45th President of the United States of America not only refused to concede an election he obviously lost, and lost by more votes than there are people in New Zealand, but that the President was such a childish, sociopathic narcissist, so utterly incapable of admitting any kind of misstep, no matter how small or insignificant, that rather than admit to having not booked a venue for a press conference, instead held that press conference in the rear parking lot of a suburban landscape gardening business between a crematorium and a sex shop. They then used this unlikeliest of platforms to say, without a hint of irony, that only votes for Trump should be counted and votes for Biden should be thrown out. That's their actual line. If you're listening to this show in the future, well, I guess you're all listening to it in the future, but more in the future. If you're listening to this show in the future, that's how it actually went down. It actually happened. Wizards are suddenly not so impossible to me now. Former mayor of New York, Rudy Giuliani, openly called for despotism while standing outside a dildo store. I feel like we're living in an alternate reality, a porno version of 1934 Germany, like someone had a cursed monkey paw and said, what if Nazis, but really sleazy. So that's why I've been on hold until the election was over. My next big show is thematically related to the US election, and the tone of that show was always going to be heavily dependent on the outcome. And fortunately for all of us, we're all getting the lighter, happier version of that show. But that's not going to be for another week or so. In the meantime, here's what I guess we could call a bonus episode. I've mentioned on this podcast before that the Romans were scared of the Gauls and the Celts. They were like Roman Jason Voorhees. So what is a Gaul? Well, the Gauls were the people to the west of Italy, and the Romans classified them in two distinct varieties, 
there were cisalpine and transalpine Gauls, depending on their relationship to the Alps. When we talk about Gauls, what we're talking about is the people in what is modern-day France, but you can also be including Switzerland, Germany, Belgium, and even the northern parts of modern Italy. When we say Celts, that's a bit harder to define. The modern concept of a Celt doesn't gel with the history. When we say Celt today, you're going to think of Ireland and Scotland, perhaps the fringes of England. And those people were indeed considered Celts by the Romans, but they're Gaelic Celts. Celts, as defined in those times, meant pretty much those people, in inverted commas. More of a loose definition than an actual ethnicity. And I'm being intentionally vague when I say those people, because Celts were defined more by shared languages and customs than by any borders, and they, they stretched all over Europe. And there's no hard and fast way to define a Celt. But the Romans, they would have lumped the Celts and the Gauls in together and just classified them as people who are not Roman. And the Romans feared these people. Some of them, some tribes for instance, they feared less, and some of them they feared more, but as a whole, the Romans had a bit of trepidation regarding Gauls and Celts. They considered them to be hulking barbarians who were tribes of nomadic warriors that went through Europe raping, pillaging, and stealing skulls. You could never let your guard down because that's when the Gauls would show up and they'd strike and they'd steal your skull. And when I'm talking about Rome here, I'm of course referring to the Golden Age of Rome, from the Punic Wars through to the height of the Roman Empire, which is a long time. But that should give you an idea of when we're talking, roughly. From a few hundred years BCE to a few hundred years CE. And the Romans of this time had a legitimate fear of Gauls, because at that point, the Eternal City of Rome had only ever been sacked once. Which is pretty remarkable for those times. It had only been sacked once, and when it was, it was sacked by Gauls. I often have to remind myself that not everyone is as keen on military history as I am, so to make sure everyone's on board. When I say sacking a city, what I mean is when an enemy army comes in and starts looting, pillaging, stealing, raping, murdering, setting things on fire, and some combination of all of that all at once. That's what it means to sack a city. And it was usually considered the goal and the reward of a military campaign. Like a general would say, hey, come with me, fight these people. And when we win, you get to go in their city and you can pick out something nice for yourself. And that something nice could be property or gold or valuables or even the people themselves. So while Rome would eventually be sacked in a big way by the Visigoths in 410, at its height, Rome had only ever suffered this fate once. Like I said, that's kind of a big deal for back then. Cities like Babylon were sacked roughly every 20 minutes. And when Rome was sacked, it was sacked by the Gauls. And it happened in 390 BCE, by a tribe of Gauls known as the Senones. And the Senones are led by a guy named Brennus. Brennus is going to become famous because he's the guy who sacks Rome. And he's exactly what you might think the Norse god Thor looked like. Not the Marvel version that looks like Fabio, I mean proper Viking Thor. Brennus has the winged helmet and a massive handlebar mustache and a chiseled jaw. He's got rippling pecs. Think Burt Reynolds in Malone. 
Apparently he's a giant. Although giant, according to the people of this time, would have meant probably about six feet tall. And he fearlessly charges into battle with a massive sword that's bigger than a fully grown Roman, and he's wearing this armor that consists of a helmet. That's it. Just a helmet. Because there's nothing like feeling the sun on your nethers when you charge into combat. That's how the Gauls like to fight. Naked. And there's nothing that upsets your enemy more than some big French hairy bollocks in their face during a melee. Uh, technically, Brennus was a Cisalpine Gaul, which would make him Italian by modern standards. But the French love this guy. He's a national hero. They name battleships after him. And in 390 BCE, Brennus and his gang of Gauls are heading towards Rome with a bullet. This is the first time that Romans will ever encounter Gauls, and it proves to be quite the first impression, because Rome gets an absolute spanking. Rome hears that there's this huge force of Gauls bearing down on them. They know of the Gauls, of course, they weren't like Uman Manda or anything, but they'd never encountered them in combat before. But they'd heard stories. They'd heard that these Gauls, who were also Celts, it's complicated, were savages. They fight in the nude, and each of them can invoke a berserker strength in combat, and they go into a battle rage, which makes them almost invincible. They feel no pain. They can lift a man over their heads. They're berserkers. And it should be noted here that berserker literally translates into bear shirt. Like bershirte. Berserkers would wear bearskins into battle as a way of showing their might, and this being the ancient world, it got passed from person to person until the myth was that berserkers could actually transform into bears in combat. Imagine being on the Roman side of this encounter. Remember, these people think magic is real, and you're told that the people you're about to fight, not only are they all crazy, but some of them can turn into bears. What does that do to morale? So Rome's in a bad mood going into the fight. And the Romans hear about these barbarian bear men uh, bearing down on them. And they say, we better go out and deal with that. Now remember, this is Rome in 390 BCE. This is baby Rome. This is well before the Punic Wars and the heyday of the Republic and the Roman Empire. They're just another city at this point. Pretty big and well-off city but not the center of the universe. And the Roman army goes out to meet these Gauls, and it's not really an army. It's kind of like a thrown-together rabble of militia, irregulars, and volunteers who brought their own spears to the battle. This is well before the Marian reforms and all that. This isn't the famous Roman legion that kicks everyone's ass. This is a peasant militia. And they head out to meet the barbarian horde, and they do so 11 miles outside the city of Rome at a little river known as the Alia. And when they get to the Alia, they find that the Gauls are closer than they thought, and the battlefield is already swarming with them. So it's essentially an encounter battle, and encounter battles already favor the stronger, less disciplined troops like the Gauls. So this Roman peasant militia stumbles onto this horde of hardened Gaelic berserkers, and it's not pretty. After a very short time, possibly as little as an hour or two, the Romans break. They see their comrades being slaughtered by the Gauls, and they just turn tail and run. They scatter in every direction. 
so the Gauls win the Battle of the Alia pretty comfortably. And as is their custom, they stop and they spend the rest of the afternoon picking over the Roman corpses and collecting ears and noses, which was the style at the time. If you fight a battle and you don't collect a necklace of ears, did you really fight a battle? This gives some of the Romans time to make it back to Rome. Not all the troops went back to Rome, they just ran in whatever direction they happened to be facing at the time, but some of them were facing Rome, and they ran back there at speed. And they get back and they tell the story of how these Gauls are seven feet tall and they turn into bears and they collect ears and they're going to be here any minute and they're going to eat all of us and we better start collectively shitting ourselves. And so everyone in Rome starts collectively shitting themselves. Rome realizes that they don't have enough troops to man the walls. So the city starts to evacuate. They take religious icons and relics and they send them away for safekeeping and they have to make some hard decisions regarding the citizens. Because the only way to protect Rome would be to evacuate to the Capitoline Hill, which was kind of a citadel within the city that could be more easily defended. But not everyone could fit on the Capitoline Hill. So there's some interesting choices being made as to who gets access behind the velvet rope, and what to do with the so-called quote-unquote useless mouths. Eventually, it was decided that the elderly were going to be left outside because there wasn't enough room and supplies in the fort to save them, and kind of in the hopes that maybe the Gauls had some kind of inbuilt ear quota, and maybe when they collected enough ears, they'd turn around and go home. Roman historians like Livy paint it as the elderly people of Rome heroically volunteered to stay behind as part of their patriotic duty. But it's debatable as to how voluntary this decision was. It's much easier to put words in someone's mouth after they're dead. As Livy himself famously said, quote, I'm a stupid moron with an ugly face and a big butt and my butt smells and I like to kiss my own butt. End quote. See? It's easy. So the Gauls show up at Rome proper and they find the gates open and unguarded. And they get the feeling that this is a trap, because there's no way that this isn't a trap. So they proceed with caution. But pretty soon they realize that this isn't the empty fort stratagem at all, because Zhuge Ling won't be born for nearly 500 years, so it's all good. And they pour into Rome, and it's party time Celtic style. They burn and pillage and plunder and rape, which was the style at the time. And it's fun times there for a while, but eventually both the Gauls and the Romans have to address the elephant in the Rome. That is, what to do with the population that are stuck up there on the Capitoline Hill. The Romans can't come down from there because they value their ears still being attached to their skulls. The Gauls don't really want to spend the lives that it would take to capture that fortified position. But they also don't want to keep the siege going because the Gauls had contracted a bad case of dysentery, which was messing with their mojo. So it's a classic siege standoff. So the Gallic leader, Brennus, has had enough of this waiting around nonsense, and he sends an envoy up to the gates of the fort, and he tells the Romans to come down from there. The Roman response is, no, you've all got dysentery, you're going to shit yourselves to death, 
then we'll calm down. Brennus says, yeah, but it's your city we're shitting in. And Rome responds with something about these being tough times and sacrifices being made and all that jazz. Brennus then decides that it's time to play hardball, and he tells the Romans that if they don't come down, he's going to set fire to Rome. The Romans respond with, fine, set fire to Rome, see if we care. We're Roman, we set fire to Rome all the time. So Brennus sets fire to Rome. And this time, the Roman response is, whoa, 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 whoa. We thought you were just bluffing. Cool your tits, maybe we can hammer out some kind of deal. So the two sides get together, and it's decided that the Gauls will leave if the Romans pay them a thousand pounds of gold. That's pretty much it. This being ancient history, there's a lot more to the story than that, and it's wild and it has living statues and magic geese, but that's for another time. So the Romans come down from the hill, and they meet with the Gauls, and everyone's standing around as Rome pays out the thousand pounds of gold. Try to keep in mind that as they're weighing each batch of gold, all of this is being done under the watchful gaze of giant, naked Frenchmen wielding massive battle axes. Here's some fun trivia. France comes from the word Frank, which was the name of the people in the region. The Franks got their name from their signature weapon, which was the Francisca, a rather heavy battle axe. The Franks, who were late Gauls, were famous for their use of the Francisca. They would ferociously charge at the enemy, and when they were about 15 meters or so away, they would each throw two, one for each hand, of these Francisca heavy battle axes at the enemy before drawing their own melee weapons and diving in. And this disrupted enemy formations, and if you happen to lose your melee weapon, well, you can just pull a Francisca out of someone's head and repeat. So that's why France is France. So the Romans are doling out a thousand pounds of gold, while the Gauls look on menacingly. You'd think that this might be the right time for a wee bit of humility from the Romans, when you quite literally have a knife to your throat. But the Romans, like certain soon-to-be ex-presidents, were not known for their ability to be humble in any situation. So as the gold is being placed on the scales, one of the Roman nobles has the bright idea to start an argument. He says that the weights are being doctored, that the Gauls have brought their own weights in, and that these weights are on the, kind of on the heavy side, and he accuses the Gauls of trying to cheat a few extra pounds of gold out of the Romans. Which, I mean, read the room, buddy. And Brennus, the leader of the Gauls, he is also of the opinion that the room must be read. Brennus stands up and he walks over to the scales, and without saying a word, he draws his sword. Brennus's sword is what is known as a Zweihander, or a Claymore, depending on who you ask. Claymore is Gaelic for really big sword. It's nearly two meters long, it has a hilt about 30 centimeters across. You can't actually keep it in a scabbard because nobody's legs are that long. These swords were worn across the back, Conan the Barbarian style. Two meters of sharp steel. Brennus gets up and he unsheaths this sword from his back and he flourishes it. And anyone who's ever held a sword will tell you that you instinctively flourish it. And without saying a word, Brennus walks over to the scales and he throws his sword on the Gaul's side of the scales, adding to the weight. 
and he turns to the Roman who complained, and he says, Vivictus. Translated, it means, Woe to the vanquished. This Roman who said that the Gauls are cheating, Brennus just essentially said, So what? What are you going to do about it? Brennus is suggesting that with a horde of enemy troops inside the walls, the Romans are not in what one might classically consider to be a strong bargaining position. Vivictus. And the Romans looked around. They saw fires still burning inside the Eternal City. They saw thousands of barbarians with weapons drawn. They saw French slongs everywhere. Things got really quiet. And then they decided to parcel out the rest of the gold in silence. Good call. There are various accounts about what happened next. Most of them are some revisionist history by the Romans, who try and tell us that their army reappeared out of the blue, and they beat the Gauls, and then they got their gold back, and isn't Rome the best? More modern historians will point out that it's far more likely that Brennus and his tribe lived very comfortably from that point on. But what isn't in dispute is that for nearly a thousand years, the Romans never got over their fear of Gauls. Even when Caesar conquered all the way to Britain and brought the Gauls into the empire, even when there were Gauls in the Roman Senate, the Romans remembered the sword of Brennus, and they were still a little bit scared of Gauls. Vivictus. Woe to the vanquished. One of my favorite lines from history. Such a wonderful and articulate way of saying, You lost. Shut up. What you think doesn't matter anymore. Vivictus. And if there's ever another point in history where somebody has very obviously lost, and they're complaining about how things are being counted, then it will once again be proper to tell them, Vivictus. Woe to the vanquished.